Father, we're mindful of your word this morning that your word never returns void. The things that you say, that you communicate through your patriarchs and prophets and teachers and scripture, that these things never return void, but they always accomplish the purposes for which you've set them forth. And so we ask now as we place our hearts and our minds, our wills, our souls and spirits before these readings that they would accomplish your purpose in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of us in the room are old enough to remember Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical. Others of you have YouTube. And you can go find some clips <laughs> for those of you who are a bit young to know Jesus Christ Superstar. There's a scene in which, you know, the movie's trying to depict Holy Week in its modern way. And there's, I don't know, two or three dozen very physical um, dancers before Jesus in like a courtyard scene. I mean, just really great physical dancing. And, you know, it's a musical, so they're singing this song. It's called Poor Jerusalem. And they're singing, you get the power, you get the power, you get the power and glory. Can some of you remember that? Over and over again. You get the power, you get the power, you get the power and glory. It's very militaristic. It's almost like they're chanting a slogan, like you'd hear, you know, chanted at a protest on the streets or something, singing this song over and over and over again. And then the character of Jesus responds singing, neither you, Simon, nor the 50,000, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, no Judas, nor the 12, nor the priests, nor the scribes, nor doomed Jerusalem itself, understand what power is. Understand what glory is. Understand at all. Tom Wright has written that sooner or later, this happens to all of us. We start out following Jesus because we think we know the story and we think we know what kind of king we want him to be. And then things begin to go wrong in our lives. He doesn't give us what we wanted. And we're tempted to wonder if we've been believing the wrong things all along. Well, Palm Sunday in the beginning of Holy Week is meant to be kind of an, our annual teacher about the power and glory of God in Jesus. And beginning this morning in Palm Sunday, it's meant to alert us to entering in this gateway to the last events of Jesus's earthly life. And as Beth said, this is not merely some sort of religious ritual. It's meant to say, here is the true story of the world. The world's one true creator God is living out his best intentions towards humanity in Christ. Christ is now entering into this week, and surprisingly, this is the pinnacle of what God has intended. Maybe not just surprisingly, maybe scandalously. But a story invites our participation. So I really hope that 
this week, this Holy Week, you can work your way through this, I don't know, in whatever you're reading, in your scripture readings. Those of you who can, I know that many of you just, it's not physically possible for you to be here Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But to the degree that you, you can, the invitation before you this week is to enter in. And as we enter symbolically this morning, the gate of Jerusalem with Jesus, what's meant to happen is that this story would shape our spiritual lives. That when we look at these most sacred moments in the history of the world, we would somehow notice by the Spirit, this is my story. This is my gateway to a real life. So that Palm Sunday and Holy Week are an invitation to notice and to enter into what God's doing. And what I want to help us do this morning, having the task of picking between all these readings, is to help us learn something about the inner state of Jesus as he went through this. His mind, his heart, his soul, and his spirit. Paying attention, I think, to the events of Holy Week gives us a sustained and focused experience on what it means for us to be human in the purposes of God. So let's get into this by trying to answer the question that the city of Jerusalem, you know, all stirred up for Passover as they would have been anyway, but there's all the scandal and mystery and stuff that's been happening with Jesus, so they're especially stirred up. He comes riding in on this colt of a donkey, and they begin to ask, both murmuring and shouting, who is this? That's a great question, actually. Who is this? What is going on here? What's up? What is this all about? In our reading in Philippians, if you want to look at it with me, we read it antiphonally, but if you want to look at it with me, it gives us a strong sense of the inner person of Jesus, of what motivated and guided him in what we now call Holy Week. And so we have this injunction, this idea that's set before us that says, let his mind or this mind be in you that was also in Jesus. Now, I mean, I I know I've been at this long enough to know that that's one of those sentences in scriptures that we think, A, that's a beautiful thought. B, we have like an instinct that that sounds important. But can we just be honest that next we go, what the heck? Like, is that even possible? What can, that, what can that possibly mean? How am I supposed to know Jesus is mine? He was perfect. I can't be perfect. So this then just sort of, I think, sits in the middle of the church's religious rhetoric. It is. It's really good rhetoric. <laughs> About as good as it gets. But what beyond rhetoric? Is there any practical import to this? Is there anything here that we could actually live into? Well, what if we began this morning just by wondering, what was Jesus' mindset? What was his mentality? What was his outlook or his set of values as he rode into Jerusalem for this last week of his life? Well, I want to suggest to you that his mindset is known by the events that led up to this. Can you imagine the second person of the Holy Trinity, the creator of heaven and earth, He got in line with those who are confessing their sins to go down to the river to be baptized by John. There's a little clue to a mindset. 
I don't even like standing in line at the grocery store. It impinges upon my uniqueness. <laughs> I don't like traffic for the same reason. When, when you, you know when you have those little dances at, a, at, a, at a, um, an intersection where you've got four stop signs? And you got those little dances, and some people are in a hurry, and other people are tentative. I, 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 seriously, I have to sometimes stop and remind myself, that person has a life too. That life is not about me, and you're all extras in a movie about me. So we get really our first glimpse in public of Jesus, and that he stood in line with sinners. And we got our first glimpse of God's solidarity in Christ with sinners and Jesus' solidarity with this movement of God in history. And then he does, of course, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, not, not giving any signals to war, which the crowds would have applauded. You know our political climate today? Just multiply it that times about five or 10 or something, and you can begin to understand the political climate into which Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And he doesn't give in to any of their mental imagery. Why? Because he has his own mind. He's living out of his mind, which was, is connected to and, and completely loyal to his Father in heaven. He knows the crowds have a mind. Or actually that they have plural minds. But none of their senses of the world or politics or economics or religion, the kind of things that human beings think about, none of them lined up with what God was doing. So Jesus has his own mind. Most, well, I don't know about most, but many scholars think that the actual the Christ to save us had very little to do with, I'm a horrible human being, make me different. These cries were most probably cries for military victory. Save us from this oppression. Save us from economic oppression. Save us from um, gender and racial oppression. Save us. And that would, of course, won him a lot of applause with the people. But Jesus has his own mind that isn't moved by retweets. It's not moved by applause. He has this mind towards his father. Karl Barth, you know, the old theologian from the middle of the last century, was preaching to a group of inmates in the prison in Basel. And he asked them, this group of prisoners, this question. He said, which do you find more amazing? that Jesus is hanging on a cross in such bad company or to find criminals in such good company. And what, of course, I think Bart is trying to help us see here is the motivation of incarnation, precisely to sit with the criminals, precisely to stand in the line going to the river with sinners. This is the motivation of incarnation. And then the effects of it is that bad people get to be around it. And that bad people are able to be transformed. Or lastly, trying to get a little bit of a grip on the mind of Jesus that we're invited into. 
I think of him on the cross, and we'll deal with this more on Good Friday, and saying, Father, forgive them. What the heck is that? When we can't even forgive our brother or our sister who said something bad about us last week. And so we have sitting before us, let this mind be in you, this also in Christ Jesus, and then we seem to have virtually no ability to get there, even on the smallest things. And so again, it sits there as a kind of religious rhetoric. But I think you've heard me say this before. You cannot, you must not picture Jesus saying those words through gritted teeth. Where his internal person is saying, I really hate these dirty blankety blanks. They've been really unfair to me. Get them, God. You must not think that that was his true inner being, but he said, Father, forgive them because they knew somebody would write it down someday and it would be really cool. Now, what if that was the kind of person Jesus was? What if he was the kind of person for whom forgiveness was native, was natural? He had already shown his solidarity at the river. He'd shown his solidarity on a donkey. This was the rhythm, the pattern. This was the habits of his heart. Or if you want to put it in modern-day brain theory, he had ruts. He had neural pathways developed through which forgiveness was native. It would have been against his nature to have said, get him, God. So then Paul says, okay, this is his mind. So have this mind. And this really means have his inner person. Have his framework for living. And Paul describes it as a selfless, obedient life. One that died a selfless and obedient death. Well, again, what what do we learn from this? How can we begin to live into whatever it might mean to have the mind of Christ? Well, obviously, the mind of Christ was not full of grasping or wanting or lusting or coveting. It was a mind that easily gave himself first to God and then to the purposes of God in other people. Again, using modern language, we might say that Jesus had rightly ordered desires. Or using more biblical language, we might say that in humility, Christ became human. He became this obedient servant, as Paul said. And this alerts us to the fact that Jesus having a different set of goals, that's what allowed him to refuse to be the kind of king that the crowds wanted, a political and military leader, and allowed him to go to the cross himself. Why? He had a different set of goals. You know, it might be a worthy spiritual exercise for you this week, this Holy Week maybe, is to just ask yourself, what are my real goals? Not the religious ones I know I should have. What are my real goals? What is it that actually animates my speaking, my behaving, my my walking? What are my real goals? And so not being a grasping person, having rightly ordered desires, being an obedient and humble person, this gave him the great freedom to be able to say, again from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, a wanting, grasping person actually cannot say those words. 
A wanting, grasping person says, Father, I take my life into my hands because I have to ensure outcomes and make sure I'm safe and make sure things go the way I want to go so I can't actually commit my spirit to you. But I know you guys, and I know that most of you in this room already care about all this. And most of you, you find yourself trying to live into it, really trying to care for the well-being of others and serving them. But what if this Holy Week, all of us together just asked ourselves, even though we are beginning to care about these things and see the trueness and rightness of them, where would we like to grow? Like, for instance, we live in a very confused, very fickle, very wobbling time. And again, you can look at any aspect of humanity, from politics to healthcare to school systems to global economics to racism to religious issues. It just feels like the world is wobbling and that many people, like the crowds, are fickle. How do we live into this? And I would say we live in a time that's marked by some really deep and profound confusion. Just think of these two words, brokenness or sin. Brokenness sounds like, well, something you might have been born with. You might have. Or it sounds like sort of family systems theory. And I'm not down on family systems theory. Maybe there's something to be done with that. But you know what? I wasn't just broken. I chose to do what I knew was wrong. Over and over and over again. From the time I was maybe about 11 till when I got converted when I was 19, those sort of teenage years. But don't brush them off for teenage years. They matter. I had a moral system. And over and over and over again, scores if not hundreds of times, I chose to do what was wrong. So it's okay for the family systems people to say, but Todd, your father was a... a alcoholic and your father was a compulsive gambler and your mother was a perfectionist. Okay. I'm not saying none of that, that none of that brokenness impinged upon me, but I know that somewhere deep within me, I chose to do wrong. Many, many times I did highly regrettable things and Jesus died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven, A, and B, that I could be freed from them. And I just think it's so important in this crazy, mixed-up world that we do not lose a concept like sin. It is a big deal. Our world is not simply broken. You know, that's such a, like, you can say that in public. You can say brokenness in a bar. But try saying sin, you can't do it. You can say culture. Um, my friend Scott McKnight, who's one of our canon theologians in the diocese, I don't think this book is out yet, but I, I think I read the manuscript, has just written a book on how we're very, we're very easy to talk about, for instance, the word culture. But where's the word world gone? 
Again, you can't talk about the world. It makes you sound like a religious nutcase. Well, maybe this Holy Week, read the Gospel of John. And maybe read it with a little Bible dictionary next to you or something. John seemed preoccupied with the world and what we would call worldliness. And so I think there are things that, though we do care about these things, there are things that we can grow into as we just refresh our minds that Jesus was the man who came to Jerusalem to die for each and every one of us, for our sins and for everybody's sins once and for all. And I know what happens because it happens to me. I mean, I turned 60 next month. I got converted when I was 19. Do the math. That's 41 years. And it is so easy to forget how important it was that you got converted. Somebody shared the faith with you. Somebody helped you see your sin, your separatedness from God, to see the need to be reconciled to him, to be regenerated, to have your sins forgiven, for someone to, as the you know, the Bible metaphors to pay the price. Whatever those biblical metaphors are, that is real stuff. And so I get that our, our day, our time, our space in human history is marked more by things like brokenness and culture. But that's not our story. Those things fit in our story because they're real. But our story is more like sin and forgiveness and world and kingdom. There are these oppositions, whether we like it or not. I know we live in a kind of an age that's marked by both and. In a lot of cases, both and is great. It's kind of what we need to get along in humanity today. But when we come to this kind of core stuff that this message of Holy Week tells us, there's something way more prof profound sitting there than merely, I'm broken. No, I have lived in rebellion to God. And brokenness can be included in that, but rebellion cannot be reduced to brokenness. Are you feeling me here? There is actually millions and millions of people all around us living in chosen opposition to God. They may or may not be broken, but they are living in chosen rebellion against God. And this story wants to tell us every year that this is what we're trying to live into. But as we do so, as our psalm reading told us this morning, we want to live into this knowing that we're always okay. And that our wobbly selves, as we're trying to cultivate the mind of Christ, are always safe in his love and his power and his glory. We wouldn't have been had he tried to find power in another way. But because he didn't, because he didn't give in to a militaristic thing that can go round and round. Listen to me here. Aren't you glad that your life is not like Afghanistan? It's been tried to be ruled militaristically four or five times now. And it just goes round and round and round and the good guys change and the bad guys and the bad guys change and the good guys. Aren't you glad that life isn't actually like that? That Jesus didn't um, approach this on those terms? 
But he approaches it on a, on a completely different set of terms, and those terms is what allows us then to sort of let our shoulders rest and realize, okay, I'm a bit covetousness. I, I'm in, I mean, I have a bit of covetousness in me. I got some anxiety in me. But it makes it okay because though the stone the builders rejected, it's become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. And we give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his love endures forever and ever. This is what Holy Week invites us into. An honesty that says I'm not a product of my culture or my brokenness. That whatever's wrong in me is fundamentally a product of my own choices before God. Fundamentally, at bottom. I don't mean to say those other things don't play into it. But at bottom, I, have, I can't get anywhere in the spiritual life until I begin to own my life as it presently is before God. And to begin to own it knowing that Jesus is the cornerstone and I enter into this, Holy Week is a gift. You only can receive forgiveness when sin is its opposite. And you can only receive spiritual growth when noticing where it needs to happen is in view. So as we move into Holy Week, I would invite you to just begin to think to what one thing would you like to give yourself to this year? Maybe it could be something very simple. Like just being present to this story. Maybe each day this week, read one of the passion narratives from the Gospels and just notice Jesus in it. And notice yourself. Maybe you could go into Holy Week this year seeking freedom from a pattern of sin that keeps you from having the mind of Christ. Or maybe you can go into this week recapturing the reassurance that God wants to forgive you and how he invites you to walk with Jesus. What might be the one thing that you can bring with you into Holy Week. Seeking, as the scriptures tell us, to cultivate the mind of Christ.